Welcome to the Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive, where you have access to all the amazing insights Dr. Finlayson Fife has shared through hundreds of interviews. I'm Mackenzie, Dr. Finlayson Fife's assistant, and we are so glad that you're here. The podcast you'll be listening to today was originally published and produced by From the Mouth of Babes and is titled Let's Get Intimate. We hope you enjoy this episode. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining us on our podcast. We're super excited to dive into this conversation about intimacy today. Great. So I have listened to several of your other podcasts and things, and you've been quoted as saying, intimacy is the willingness to know and be knowable. And most of us are terrified of that. So first, can you define what emotional intimacy is and why it might be terrifying for someone to be emotionally intimate? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of us sort of claim that we want an intimate partnership, that we want, you know, a close partnership. But I think what a lot of us instinctively desire is someone that's close to us, that approves of us, and that uh, thinks we're wonderful, and sees all the best parts of us. Sure. And of course, the challenge of getting married and moving beyond the kind of initial part of any relationship is that they start to know not just the good parts of you, but the undeveloped and darker parts of you. And so if you really want an intimate partnership, well, it takes a tremendous amount of courage because it means you're willing to let someone really know you, bad parts, undeveloped parts, along with the good parts. And that takes a lot more courage. And in fact, I think a lot of us in marriage will say, you know, that we will push back against what gets reflected back to us that we don't want to deal with. And say that it's a limitation of our spouse as opposed to our own limitation. Hmm. If you loved me, you'd go blind to that part. Or if you loved me, that wouldn't matter to you or you'd accept me as I am. And so if you're really going to have an intimate partnership, it means you're willing to deal with who you are and in particular what gets exposed by being in relationship to another person. Because I thought I was a nicer person before I got married. (laughs) And then you start to see how you can act under pressure or how you can act when you're not getting the approval that you want. And it's not always flattering. And so being willing to kind of deal with who you really are and what its impact is, well, it takes some courage and, and and, and also to resist the temptation to shoot the messenger. Yeah, I that just made me think about one of your older podcasts that you guests spoke on about emotional maturity. And I feel like, yeah, go, go back, find that through the archives, listen to that one first, because I feel like that's the real first step. Yeah. Intimacy is, you know, yeah. Learn being emotionally mature. And let's see, you, you said, if you want to be happy and capable of intimacy, you must have compassion towards your own humanity and vulnerability yes to me that but like what i hear is you have to foster honesty and emotional maturity in yourself first before being able to have intimacy true intimacy with others 
Yes, and I'm not so sequential. I mean, yes, you're right. But what I would also say is sometimes it's in relationship with another that you start learning to have more compassion towards your own and their humanity. But, you know, if you don't have some compassion towards our basic flawed nature, which is true for all of us, well, then you take it too personally that you're limited and you get defensive and self-protective and rather than, yeah, get over myself. Okay, I can see it and I want to deal with it because I don't want to do harm or I don't want to do something that I'm not, I don't feel good about. And so it's kind of the exposure that helps us move forward, but tolerating that we will be exposed in the process, tolerating that our limitations will be present is really an essential part of being happily married. So I think our audience is mostly LDS, um, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, although we do have people of other faiths. But I would say when we grew up, that Mm. wasn't really part of the conversation as far as preparing Mm. for marriage. I think, yes. I mean, Kara and I grew up in a home with a therapist, and so maybe we got that piece of uh-huh. how to emotionally mature and grow and be um, prepared to show up and show up in unflattering ways occasionally. But I would say a lot of our listeners, they might not have had any of that instruction. And so when they get into marriage, it's this whirlwind of like, this is not what I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. Um We also have a tendency, I think, to expect our spouse to be the one Mm. that manages our sense of self and our self-worth and makes us happy and then also takes a front seat to managing our sexuality. So Mm -hmm. why would that be potentially dangerous? And if that's the case, like, how do we move forward if you've given your spouse that unfair responsibility? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a lot in what you said, and help me if I miss some parts of it because I want to respond to a lot of it. One is just I, I fully agree with you. I think a lot of us inherit a view of marriage that absolutely works against being happily married. And people aren't trying to work against you being happily married, but they're offering what they think is true. And that is the idea, one that you named, is that if you're a woman, your husband will manage your sexuality and bring you into your sexuality and legitimize your sexuality, which in my experience, working with couples around the issues of emotional and sexual intimacy doesn't work, right? That just doesn't work. But I think also this idea that if you marry the right person, if you marry well, it won't, if you're Christ-like, there won't be conflict. Mm -hmm. And there doesn't have to be contempt. You know, contempt is one way that we handle difference is either overt hostility or covert hostility. So contempt undermines a marriage, but conflict doesn't because you can bump up against difference and have it refine you and have it expose your limitations and help you grow into somebody better. It's the drive wheel of our development. A lot of couples try to feel guilty about the fact of conflict And so often one person will submit, they'll kind of shut themselves down, they'll go become invisible in the marriage on some level to keep conflict low and the appearance of unity high. Hmm. But what's happening is contempt is now below the surface, eroding the foundation. 
And so what happens is when somebody's sort of swallowing and kind of keeping themselves hidden, it can look like it's happy, but in fact, resentment is growing and often in undetected ways and shaping the choices in the marriage in undetected ways, low sexual desire, low contact, low desire to spend time together. It interferes with what people are often talking about when they say they want intimacy of a sense of connection and closeness because there's a basic dishonesty that's driving the partnership in the name of keeping conflict low. Hmm. And I think there's just one more thought I have about it is I think, yeah. you know, kind of in line with all this is that we can be quite perfectionistic in our faith. And I'm all for becoming perfect in the way that Christ meant it, which is to become whole, to have integrity of self. That's what it meant uh, in that time was to be complete. I'm all for us continuing to develop into more and more refined people. But the idea of being without flaw is an impossible ideal and one that actually undermines us to even have because none of us will ever have it. And if we think we somehow should, it drives us into more pretense and into more self-contempt. And it makes it harder for us to deal with a natural process of development that marriage is. I mean, we believe in the institution of marriage in part because it drives our development. But if we if we sort of relate to it in some kind of dishonest way to keep conflict low, it doesn't do what it's designed to do for us. That's really interesting because I think a lot of people wouldn't say that that's what marriage is designed for, to your point. That's right. That it is all about providing this unified front. And I, I, as you're talking, I'm thinking of little situations where I have fallen to that line of thinking. So can you give it a, an example of what healthy conflict might actually look like in marriage? Because I think a lot of times when we think of conflict, we think like, oh, contention, fighting, like that's not healthy. How could that at all be healthy? So can you give us sure. an example of what healthy conflict might actually look like? Well, here's one that just came into my mind. I don't know if it's the best example. It's an example I've given sometimes, but you know, my husband came from a family that's much more reserved than mine. I mean, they're, they're more cerebral. They read books quietly in the living room. <laughs> <laughs> My family's like loud and obnoxious. I love them to death, but you know, we're much more, you know, gregarious and so on as a group. And so we have a tradition in my family where when it's someone's birthday, you say what you love about the person whose birthday it is, right? Yeah. And I I dated lots of guys who would have been very comfortable doing that kind of thing, right? But none of them had the attraction for me as my husband did because in part because he's the opposite of me. You know, he's quiet, he's introverted, he doesn't gush, you know, he's, he loves me, but he's not a gusher, you know. And so, <laughs> so I married him and was attracted to him in part because of exactly that quality. But then when it comes time to my birthday, we drove up from Boston to my parents' house in Vermont. And my mom's like, okay, well, let's, let's go around and say what we love about Jennifer. You know, great tradition. I have no issue with it. But for my husband, he's just like, oh, I just hate talking in front of your whole family about why I love you. So my point is the way that I handled that was what's the matter with you, right? Because, <laughs> because I was insecure enough that it felt like a puncture to me to not have him validate me and tell me that I'm wonderful all the time. And and so I would sort of handle that by trying to get him to be what reinforced the picture of me that I wanted. 
-hmm. I wasn't that interested in how he operated. I wanted him to do what made me comfortable. So I would, in some way, in some sense, punish him for being the wrong kind of person because it punctured my fragile sense of self. <laughs> so with time, like, I, you know, John would cough out some nice things and try, try to accommodate me. But I think, you know, with time, I just realized I'm doing something that's unfair. I'm kind of trying to make him do something that just manages my neediness when I can see that this person was not created to reinforce me. I know he loves me. That's different. Be different if he didn't love me, okay? Because that, that would be a different meaning. He loves me. He knows me. He cares about me. And it's not his thing. And he doesn't have to mold himself into my image. <laughs> and if I love him, grow up, hold on to my sense of self, and don't, you don't, I mean, I can be clear that I like it when he does that. I don't have to pretend otherwise. So yeah. it, it was what happened is I got more comfortable with the fact that I like that but that I wasn't going to put it in the frame that I've got the right way of being that he should conform to, and therefore he must do it. And so, you know, years later, because I really let it go, and I just stopped kind of making it a thing. Years later, his family, his parents were here visiting, and it happened to be my birthday. And I had no imagination that we would be saying what they love about me, because this is not their thing. And it's, but after dinner, John said, hey, mom, dad, everybody come in the living room and Let's tell Jennifer what we love about her. And and that for me was very significant because it was really truly a gift because he knew me and he was offering something that mattered to me and, and in some ways developing himself to offer something that he knew mattered to me. But it worked well because I also didn't have the expectation or the demand. He knew I would be fine if he didn't, but he wanted to offer it. And so I think that's a process in which we both grew up a little bit to love each other better. I love that example. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. But it makes me have a lot more questions. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Because, you know, as we're having this conversation, I think what essentially what you're saying in a nice cute little box is that I, at the core of a good intimate marriage is going to be, it's going to be a growing marriage. That's right. Meaning that there's going to be growing pains. You're going to be having to deal with conflict. You're dealing with differing personalities, different backgrounds. Um, but I think, and maybe I, I don't think I'm alone in this thought process, but I think we all kind of do go into marriage thinking that, yeah, this person is supposed to buoy oh, me up. They're supposed 100%. to there is supposed to be some give and take. So what is the balance? Because obviously we don't want to be in a position where we feel like, oh, our husband or our spouse owes us something. Like they don't owe right. us anything. But in order to establish, in my opinion, a good foundation of intimacy, there there has to be that good and give and take. Mm -hmm. So what's the balance there? Yeah, like when is it too much to ask versus you know, you really do need to stand up for something. Right. And it's a little hard to answer just in the abstract, but I think what I've often tried to push myself to do is think, am I being unfair? Am I trying to get him to handle something in me? And no, I didn't get married till I was 29 years old. And I had thought a lot about what it meant to be married and so on. But one thing that was really interesting is that in the first year of marriage, I saw myself, I had provided for myself financially from the time I was 18 until I was married. So I, I was accustomed. I paid my own tuition to college. I paid for my own mission. This was not unusual for me. 
Yeah. But in the first year of marriage, I just started instinctively going into a dependent, like my IQ went down (laughs) (laughs) because I started just playing out this kind of dependent model of wifehood that Mm -hmm. I had seen my whole life. And in some ways I wanted it. I just wanted to be like, hey, take care of me financially, emotionally, make me feel good about me. I mean, and John was a little bit like, what's going on? (laughs) What's what's happened? You know, it's like I always drove before, but now I was getting in the passenger side of the car. And it was like emotionally I was looking for a kind of protection in marriage that Mm -hmm. I think was not coming from my strength it was almost indulgent and I had sort of cultural permission to do it. And so I had to kind of check myself. Is this about me really, you know, taking responsibility for myself, but expecting to be treated respectfully and cared for, or am I doing this kind of dependent extracting? And men can do this in their own way from women as well. I mean, this is Often what I'm working with in marriage coaching and marriage therapy is working with couples where they're they're kind of creating a mutual dependency where one needs and the other one needs to be needed. And so a lot of times people work out their, their fear of choosing and their fear of intimacy by creating a need-based relationship, even if one looks not needy because they are the strong one, right? Mm-hmm. So I, the, the long answer here is I would just kind of look at, am I, am I trying to get him to manage my feelings about myself or am I taking responsibility? And like uh, on the example of like getting him to say what he loved about me, I didn't have to apologize for liking that or for having that matter to me. And I could be honest about that. That really makes me feel good. But I also understood if I was honest with myself that I was married to a man that loved me. I knew he did. I I could see it, you know, that he cared about, he would listen to me. He thought about the things I said. So I didn't need to go and demand a a particular version that made me feel good. And so kind of getting better at sustaining my sense of self was part of my work and not making it his job but I had to kind of track myself because I could feel myself falling into patterns that I found familiar. A lot of what you were saying was kind of making me think about people who go into a marriage and their culture, their upbringing, they have unhealthy, like, I need this, I need that. Like, mm-hmm. like yes, they came from families where they had an overbearing mother or yes. meshment and they you know they can't leave the nest and leave yes. the parents and cleave onto their wife um, mm-hmm. or you know vice versa yeah. to the spouse and how I feel I the more intimate I get with other women and learn about other people's backgrounds the more I'm like how are we we're, we're all dealing with really similar things because mm-hmm. of the culture we grew up in mm-hmm. and how Say one spouse is enlightened a little bit, a little more emotionally mature. How do you navigate one spouse having emotional limitations or walls built up? They're not willing, they're not able because of trauma, because of unhealthy meshments. How do you be a co-creators of intimacy when the other one is just seems to be immovable or so many steps behind? Mm. Well, 
Um, I guess the quick answer to that is through compassion and honesty, but not to leave what is true off the table. So what happens in a lot of marriages is where people believe the idea that this person is three steps behind. And people can be a, a half step behind, perhaps, but couples tend to gravitate. People don't tend to marry people who are fundamentally more needy than they are. So people tend to marry at about the same level of development, you know, give or take a little. Now, most people don't think that. They often think, I'm the mature one. You know, how did my spouse, um, you know, how did I get so unlucky or whatever? <laughs> okay. So it's easy to think that because you are, you have your own self-deceptions around the way that your immaturity plays out. And I see this over and over again in the work I do where one looks more functional than they are, but they're actually kind of propped up on the neediness of the other, the overt neediness. However, that said, what I find, you know, I'm teaching a men's sexuality course right now, and we were just talking a lot about this kind of nice guy syndrome where you have a, a, a wife that you perceive as fragile or needy or low self-esteem or feels bad about her body or whatever it is. So the man, in order to be the right kind of guy or to not be a jerk or whatever, is managing her feelings about herself through dishonesty. That never works. It's very tempting, and it's tempting to call it love, and it's tempting to call it kindness, but it's actually creating a dishonest marital foundation. When you say dishonest, are you saying like dishonesty and the fact that maybe she doesn't actually look as good as, mm -mm. or what, what are you saying? No, I don't mean that. I mean that there is a kind of caretaking that is, you know, you're protecting the wife, for example, from the realities of the husband. Ah, gotcha. From who he is, from what he thinks, from what he desires, and saying, well, she's too fragile. Now, on the one hand, it's kind of an inverse power hierarchy because the, the, the fragile one, quote unquote, gets the control in the sense that her supposed neediness runs the marriage. Mm -hmm. um, but it's... It's also, you know, it keeps her from ever feeling or dealing with her own strength because she can get away with having somebody else manage her sense of self. Now, I sound very uncompassionate when I say that, but for people to really get strong, they have to challenge these dependencies because they can be stable patterns in a marriage that keep the couple from growing up from taking deeper responsibility. For example, the the man that's that's managing his wife's low self-esteem all the time by never bringing what his sexual desires are to her, never saying how he, what he really thinks, never confronting her if she's mean to the children. You know, he, like he's always protecting her feelings about herself because he doesn't want her to cry or feel bad. The the problem is that keeps both the husband and wife immature because he colludes in shielding her from reality and from whom the person that she's be being, but also it shields him from taking deeper responsibility for his life, for where the marriage is going, for the intimate relationship, for the impact on the children. And so in the name of weakness and goodness, something bad happens in the marriage, meaning nothing grows into their individual strength. Like, I, I feel very grateful, at the, even though I didn't at the time, 
for the ways that my husband would challenge me around what is true and aspects of myself that I didn't want to deal with, you know, and not because he was trying to be mean or pushing back just to like get me off, you know, his back or something, but more saying what he really thought and felt about what I was doing or how I was behaving. And even though I wouldn't like it, you know, I'd say, well, that's, you know, you're not being nice or you're not, you know, you're, you don't understand this part that justifies me. <laughs> but in reality, it's like a check and balance in the marriage that pushes you to kind of see who you are and pushes you to grow. And, and the easy loophole is this kind of collusion in a pretense. And couples do it very instinctively, often because they watch their parents do it. Mm hmm. Yeah, I totally, totally get that. Like, I something I admired watching with Dana. Dana got married a few years older than I did. I got married right after I turned 22. Mm. And I thought, oh, we're just like so in love. And I'm so emotionally mature. But it took us almost 10 years to really like break down those barriers of like not hurting each other's feelings. So we weren't emotionally honest, mm -hmm. like ever, right? And but neither of us could really acknowledge that, you know? Yes. And so I feel like what you're saying is just like, yeah, be honest, be honest about yourself, be honest about like own your feelings, own your communication. Yes. And you're eventually your partner is going to understand that, respect that and probably meet you at that point of honesty as well. Yes. That emotional safety. That's right. It's a safety that comes out of honesty not out of protecting people from what's true. So it's safety that's based in what's real. So sometimes I think when you get that honest, mm. you have realizations that maybe the marriage isn't going to work or maybe that, mm. you know, what if one of the, the people in the marriage is not willing to really develop that aspect of themselves you know, then what do you just because I've heard you kind of talk about this before, but it seems like it's like this gray area of like, okay, well, then does that mean like you get divorced and you just move on with your life? Does that mean that you just settle that for the rest of your life, you're just not going to get that because they just can't provide that for you? You know, like, obviously, that it's not like a black and white statement, because every couple is going to have to figure out what works for them. But I, right. I would be interested to know, like, perspective right. is on that. Mm -hmm. There have been times when I've been sitting with a couple and I think I can see what's happening and I can see how they're both colluding in a different picture that's easier to handle. And I feel like love's executioner, you know, if I'm going to say what I really think, even though that's what they're paying me to do. Yeah. <laughs> and it's scary. Like I, I, I often want to just kind of pretend at the level that they are functioning but in my experience, that doesn't help people. Yeah. Um, it doesn't help people deal with what's real. And I don't pretend to know what people's choices, uh, how to say it, what they can really live with. Mm -hmm. But I want to help people be able to have the maximum amount of reality in the choices that they make so that they can live with them without regret. Yeah. And often what happens when you start to reveal what's true to people, it pushes them to confront themselves, to start growing up, to start being a better person, to see how they've been participating with their partner in something 
that has got their head in the sand and they're not really dealing with either themselves or their spouse or the way they're a couple. And so oftentimes the truth pushes people to step up, find their strength, find their courage and get stronger. And then they start to have a more intimate marriage because they've become better people Hmm. and they've become better friends in the process. So truth feels like the enemy sometimes. (laughs) It's not. I mean, that's the thing. The truth really does set you free. We say that all the time in church, but a lot of us don't believe it. (laughs) But the truth really, it hurts and it will stretch you. But it really does allow you to to build your house on a rock, on a foundation that is stable. And that's what marriages need. It's not the issues of difference. It's the issue of honesty. And so sometimes when what is honest gets revealed, people may know that they can't or won't create something better in that marriage, right? And that hurts. And that's painful, but I still think that allows people to start living in a way that's more strength-based and honest, even if one or both won't stay in the marriage. Yeah. So that's not my goal, of course, but my goal is to help people see what's real so they can make choices they can live with. Yeah, I think that's excellent. Um, What would you say are long-term like what are the long-term damages do you see if people aren't willing to really work on their self-development and their intimacy within a marriage I mean you know a lot of times there is an imbalance in that way where there's one person who really is like I'm willing to face anything I'm willing to look at anything I need to develop and they're partnered with somebody who doesn't want to be bothered or doesn't want an intimate marriage. They maybe want the stability of a marriage, but they don't want a rich, growing marriage. Mm -hmm. And so your question was, what what are the options for somebody who's in that kind of a partnership? Is that what you asked? Or just what do you see as as the the damage if people aren't willing? So kind of going back to originally, like, I think when people are in a position where they want to work on it, but what if they're just like ignorance is bliss and they don't realize that they're not even having an intimate relationship and neither one, like what, what do you see as the long-term damage that can come if, if couples aren't willing to really create a growing Mm -hmm. vulnerable marriage? Well, I would say resentment definitely is, is a big part of it. And I think if, 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 if there's a couple that gets married and they have no assumption of a deep friendship and they just think, look, we're just reproduction partners and we're going to raise children. And, you know, we, we aren't expecting that, you know, then maybe they would be okay if, yeah. if they didn't have the idea that this should be an intimate friendship. But usually people have that as their ideal. It's what they want. They want something that's special, that's different than the other relationships that are out there. That's what marriage is. is It's a special relationship. It's the one family relationship that's fully chosen and that has sexuality as a foundational aspect of it. And so usually people are operating from that ideal, even if it's covert within them. And so when they don't operate in a way or their spouse doesn't operate in a way to fulfill that ideal well, then resentment is very, very likely yeah. 
to then be part of the marriage. And resentment kills sexual desire, kills friendship, it kills pleasure, it brings out the worst in people, <laughs> right? And then you have children who are watching what it means to love, what it means to partner, and you're giving them an internalized model that then they'll have to grow themselves out of. Hmm. So the cycle continues. If yes. You, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a, a great segue into, I think a lot of the emotional int- intimacy obviously has a lot to do with what goes on in the bedroom. So mm-hmm. let's let's transition to that. So one question right off the bat that I have is, what if one person in the marriage wants sex more than the other? How do you navigate that conversation? Well, I, first of all, I think it's pretty normal that you're going to confront differences um, in everything. You know, you, right. you can't really get married without confronting differences, at least some of the time. And, and there's going to be couples that maybe even have similar interest in sex. But during different periods, one will be the higher and one will be the lower. And in the course of a conversation, you can vacillate higher and lower, right? right? So that it's just managing difference is not about anything going wrong. The issue is how do people relate to difference Hmm. and how do they respond to it? Because if people start, you know, there's two bad ways to respond to that difference. One is to demand that the other person give you the sex that, you deserve. And the other is to just, uh, well, or demand that they have as little sex as you expect, right? right? Because those are both destructive. Or that you just yield to the other person's desire and you just, you know, tolerate the other's demand. Mm -hmm. What I think is healthier is to see like, who are you and who am I? And why do these things matter? In fact, I think a lot of times people's differences grow when they get entrenched into these control struggles. So then the higher desire person becomes even higher because they feel deprived and anxious and they're trying to extract approval from their partner. And the lower desire person feels that extraction and that demand. And so they become even lower desire. And so a lot of times when people are kind of handling it badly, it just gets punctuated Right. Where couples that handle their differences with some compassion and a willingness to know the other person, their differences start melting away. It becomes like, hey, you know, I'm not that much in the mood, but I I care about you and sir, let's work on let's see if I can get in the mood, you know, because I like you and I like being with you. And so, you know, it might take me a little bit of time to stop thinking about, you know, X, Y, and Z from the day, but I I, I like you because you're my friend. So it's much easier to kind of encourage something within yourself. Or if you're the higher desire person to be like, you know, I can see that my spouse is exhausted right now and I, I'm okay. And I know she or he loves me and I don't need, I'm all right. I don't need to like go and get the validation sexually. So there just becomes an ins- a, a flexibility that's a part of partnership and friendship when you really have that sense of being good friends. Love that. Um, I heard from another practitioner that quoted you recently, and he said that you said women need to learn about male sexuality from another woman. And I'm really curious to hear like the rest of like your point of view on that, because when I did hear it from him, I it made me think about the other like male therapists that I had had male sexuality explained to me. And I what I'm hearing from them 
is that they make excuses for men. Like boys will be boys. Mm. Men are visual creatures. Therefore, you know, they, they have desires. They have cravings. Mm-hmm. They can't control themselves. Right. Yeah, they can't control themselves. To me, it's, it just sounded like an excuse coming from a man. So mm-hmm. I am like, that totally was like, okay, I think she's right. I want to know. What she <laughs> I don't remember saying that, but I, I might've said that. I mean, I'm trying to think of why I would have said it that way, but I think that um, it probably feels less threatening to hear about how, because of what you're saying, if a man is, you know, for example, just around pornography, sometimes I, I say like, can we just like not be so reactive to this a little bit and just kind of think through it a little bit more and try and understand it so that we can be wise rather than just in this kind of reactive anxiety culturally and interpersonally because it actually interferes with our ability to sort it out. So I really take that position. But then I hear from wives writing me saying, my husband said that you think porn is good, you know, and I'm like, wait. (laughs) And my point is that it's very easy for people to um, use ideas, this is my long way of saying, to use ideas about male sexuality to basically not take responsibility for themselves and get their wives on the defensive, right? Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I can imagine that that's true if it's sort of thinking more about, I mean, I believe 100% that men and women are both capable of evil and we're both capable of good and we're capable of caring for one another in our differences. And so understanding how men are wired differently as a group, understanding how men think differently as a group around sexuality is valuable for not pathologizing men for being men and for not pathologizing masculinity inherently, right? Any more than we should pathologize femininity or feminine or women's sexuality. So yes, I think Sometimes settling our, it comes back to this tolerance of intimacy. Can I know who my spouse is? Like just around pornography, I think we we so can be so anxious that we fail to ask the question. And I, this goes both ways. I'll say it in both directions. Of like, why do you look at it if you have a spouse that looks at it? What does it mean to you? What does it solve for you? What is the meaning that it has in your life? Do you feel good about it? Why do you hide it? You know, these are questions that are not designed to excuse per se. They're designed to understand. Then you can think about what is what is the meaning of it and what would be good in our lives in the face of those meanings. Uh, just as like a lot of times if a woman is a lower desire person, she's her partner doesn't ask her why she's low desire, you know, maybe in an accusing way. Right. And a, and in a judgmental way, but not in a help me know you. You know, what does it mean to you to be sexual with me? What do you not like about it? You know, um, what do you wish were different? I mean, these are questions that are intimate and they are ultimately about a friendship. But because they challenge our sense of self, we often don't want to ask them or know the answers. We'd rather judge and pressure to reinforce ourselves. And there's lots of versions of this between men and women. These are just a couple of versions, but, but they're designed to try and extract reinforcement from the other and punish them for the lack of reinforcement versus knowing our spouse. They're, they're mirroring or like, this is about me. Your sexuality is about me. Exactly. And it's like, no, no, it's not. Like I could have really low hormones right now. 
That's right. I just had a baby, Matt. That's right. Inside and outside were tore up. Like. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so when it's ourselves, that's so obvious. But when it's our partner, it can feel much less obvious and we can make it very personal. Right. And so, you know, I love my husband, but there have definitely been times where I don't want to know what he thinks. <laughs> I mean, that's no question. <laughs> I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want it to shape or change my mind. And I'd much rather just speak louder and get him to see it my way. And those are not my best moments. <laughs> but they're tempting. And we're all tempted by that. Yeah, for sure. Not really. <laughs> okay, it's like 10, 15, 30 years into your marriage. How do you rekindle intimacy and specifically, specifically sexual intimacy when it may be lacking or it has just changed over the years? Mm-hmm. Well, there's two things. One is, you know, what we've been talking about is, is there resentment there? Is there, are there things that have been kind of buried underground and they need to be unearthed and looked at because the passion and the authenticity has been snuffed or has been limited by those realities? So sometimes it's a deeper level of growth that the couple needs to do. And, you know, in marriage, in any marriage, we go through periods of growth and stasis. And sometimes, you know, right after the kids have left or, you know, when there's a transition, a parent dies, something like that, couples often can go into a growth cycle that and it's uncomfortable and it's stretching. But often their emotional and sexual intimacy will increase if they respond well to those growth cycles. That is to say, if they stay open minded and open hearted in the face of the way that life and reality and the relationship is pushing them. So, you know, my basic response to that idea is when, if, if the sexuality has started to become kind of boring or it's become a little bit, you know, um, what's the word, like formulaic or just kind of right. you know, boring in that sense, that, that it, it could be an expression of the ways that the couple is kind of growing out of their stasis mode and they're kind of feeling some pressure to start to bring a little more honesty and development into the marriage. Um, but the other version of it is if you don't invest, if you just expect sexuality to happen to you, um, it can be challenging to keep it interesting because as people we want the security of an intimate marriage we want the stability of it we want the safety of it but we also want freedom and novelty and expansion and these are things that human beings want um, and both matter and when you can create it in a marriage you're really happy that is the security that I know you and you know me that you love me and I love you and we're willing to bring some freshness and newness and and have a kind of grown-up playfulness around sexuality that doesn't destroy its foundation or undermine the safety, but keeps us like knowing each other in new ways, trying new things. Um, you know, in my enhancing sexual intimacy course, when I do the live, when I show a clip from Modern Family in season one on Valentine's Day, where you know they're trying to spice things up instead of just going out for Italian food yet again, they. <laughs> decide to meet up in a restaurant as kind of alter egos and it's hilarious and funny and he's trying to pick her up and then you know and and so you know you get to see them trying on new parts of themselves with each other it's like a beautiful version of a couple that's keeping it 
new and fun and interesting, but it's still them. And, you know, that takes some courage. I think a lot of people just be like, oh, I feel like an idiot. I can't do that. But, you know, I think that, well, it's a willingness to tolerate intimacy. I'm willing to let you see the weird, strange, ridiculous parts of me. (laughs) If I show you my erotic mind, if I show you my sexual thoughts, if I let you know me in this way, and we can make room for each other's weirdness. You know, that's a real kindness. <laughs> I love that. I, I, it's funny that, like, I, I relate to that in a certain, in a way, too. Like, I, my husband and I have gone, gone through some massive growing pains, but our relationship, our intimacy has gotten so much deeper. Yeah. So we had finally had some really honest, open communication. And it was kind of like, well, I was just really too bashful to like tell you what I like and what I mean, like, like giggly, you know? And, yeah. and so I like to do voices and I would like would say something silly, like do a Gloria impression or something. And then be like, Oh my gosh. I'm like, so weird. So weird. <laughs> no, but it's like, no, I'm freaking over. I'm in my thirties. I can own oh, yeah. this even in the bedroom. And that's okay. Oh yeah. And wait till you get to your 50s. You're like, eh, I have nothing to hide anymore. <laughs> it's like, you'd stop apologizing for being a human being. And it's there's a lot of freedom in it. Yeah. And there, it should be fun. Like, yes, I think I took sex so seriously. as a Yes, many of us too. It just means so much. But also, like you said, it's adult play. Yes. Enjoy and it should be fun and silliness. Yes, exactly. And it does mean a lot in a good marriage. It does. It's like, it's like. It's like a sacred space, honestly, in a good marriage, in a growing marriage. But that's different than it's like hushed tones. The silliness and the playfulness is part of the sacredness. And we don't really think that way. We think of sacred as like, you know, buttoned up and guarded. And I think that's a kind of immature understanding of beauty and goodness that, you know, it's precisely the intimacy um, and the beauty that a couple can create through making room for each other, that does make it sacred. Yeah. I was researching all of your different courses recently and then came to one of the last lessons in your intimacy um, lesson. Mm-hmm. And the, the couple sexuality course, that yeah. one, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, Cult- and it was called Cultivating Vertical Eroticism and mm. the Sacredness of Intimate Sex. And I was trying... I don't know that I had like feelings about that, but I was like, what does that really mean? Is that to me, it was like kind of a, maybe that there's a hierarchy in sexuality maybe, but it really shouldn't be that way. So maybe you can explain that. Yeah. What kind of how deeply you let yourself know the other person, you know, that people that have lots of relationships always kind of have superficial sex. Mm -hmm. And so they don't really, maybe they're with a different body, but they, they don't know the other person enough to really be with a different mind. But when you're married to somebody and you make it an intimate marriage, you allow yourself to really know the other person and for them to know you, well, then there's a lot of depth. You know, it's not just, you know, you're bringing your projections into your sexual relationship yet again, but instead you really know another person. And you know other aspects of themselves through the sexual interactions that you might try on different egos and minds and try on different parts of yourself. But that's the verticalness of it. By vertical, I mean the depth of it. Cool. Yeah. 
so it's it's I'm borrowing the phrase from I think Kushner, Rabbi Kushner, I think, who wrote a piece about this. So um, I so that's where I'm using. But it's it's verse. It's there's nothing wrong with horizontal novelty. That's like a new outfit. You know, you go to a hotel room. You know, you change things up a little bit. But the real that can often drive a lot more of the vertical engagement as well, the depth. Okay, I have one more question that kind of goes along with what we're talking about, because I think a lot of times the hush hush tones, as you mentioned before, Mm -hmm. comes Mm -hmm. when you have kids, because maybe you don't want your kids to know that aspect of your your life and your marriage. But I think it's really important that your children see that that is a healthy part of your marriage and that you talk about it. But how would you suggest creating that adult play, as we've mentioned, while also being respectful of that intimacy and not being, yeah, you know, like too verbose about. Sure. I mean, I think kids deserve privacy from you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, they don't want to be grossed out and they don't right. need to know more than they need to know. But they can track if their parents like each other. They know if mom leans in when dad touches her. Or does mom shrink away and mm-hmm. resent? So they're picking up already a lot about whether or not you like each other. And, you know, a locked door or a sense of mom and dad go out on dates and they like each other. Those are all the signals. If you really do have a good marriage, they'll know it. And and they don't need to know any of the specifics. They'll just know it's true. And they'll trust you when you say that sexuality and marital sexuality is a wonderful part of life. You know, a lot of people who don't actually believe that are saying that to their kids and their kids are like, yeah, you guys are liars. (laughs) (laughs) You just don't want me to have any pleasure in my life, you know? Right. (laughs) But if they, you know, they can, they can feel if you like each other. And I think that's significant. I love that. A living example that, that's great. Like I, mm-hmm. when we grew up, my parents would always start like making out in the kitchen and all mm-hmm. of, like, ew, gross. Yeah. No kissing in the kitchen. We have one rule. No kissing. Yeah. Gross. <laughs> you know, but of course we do. Our parents wanted yeah. to connect and, you know, my husband and I do that in front of our kids and, yeah. butts and you know, smack butts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. little, that's the problem is now our kids or smacking butts too, but <laughs> just at home, you don't smack, smack her friends, but <laughs> and, and, yeah, but it yeah. makes kids feel more secure. I mean, they, they'll complain a little bit like you're going on a date, you know, but it does make them know that mom and dad are not going to go anywhere. Yeah. No. You know, staying together. Love it. Let's transition and let's do the last segment, which is our favorite of this came out of the mouth of my babe. And we would love Jennifer to share her story okay. about what came out of her babe. So um, there's a couple, but this is, I don't know if you've listened to my podcast, but this was years ago. My daughter's now 15. I think she would have been about nine years old at the time. Uh-huh. And she, I think, she, I think she'd heard me teach at church some, I'm trying to think of like where she was hearing me say these things, but she was playing with dolls with some of her friends. And so they were, they were talking about some relationship that they were in, that the mm-hmm. dolls were in. And so my daughter's like, well, this, she wants to be wanted, but she doesn't want to want a man. <laughs> and the friend's like, what? 
she's like, she doesn't want the exposure. That's what my daughter's saying. So I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> she's been overhearing me. So anyway, it's just one of these funny moments. But maybe I'll quickly tell another one that might be a funnier story. When I was a little girl, like I talk all about integrity and all that, but I didn't have it when I was about four years old, five years old. And I had written my name on the wall behind a couch with a big backwards J. And my brother, who would have been between like one and two years old, was like crawling around. And and my brother said, hey, did you write your name on the wall? And I was like, no, you know, Carl did it. And so my brother's like, well, are you sure? Like, Carl, there's no way Carl was going to get a pen and write on the wall. <laughs> and so I'm trying to get out of this. And he's like, are you sure? He's like, Jennifer, you know, just all that matters is that you tell the truth. Because the truth is, you won't get in trouble if you tell the truth. The truth is really what matters. And and I thought about it for a bit. And then I was like, nope, it was Carl. So, anyway, <laughs> so I, I stayed with my story. You know, Carl was just trying to frame me. But But I never told that to my daughter but my daughter when she was a similar age went and wrote jane on the wall backwards j everything i'm telling you the genetics of it were and <laughs> and she comes upstairs and she's like graham graham wrote my name on the wall <laughs> <laughs> so this ability to misrepresent the truth apparently has been passed on genetically but <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining us. It was a real treat. And I think I've gained so much inspiration and just knowledge. And I think mostly I just want to work on myself so that I can show up better in my marriage and be a more whole person myself so that I can create this whole mm-hmm. new marriage. So thank you for, for sharing all of your knowledge yeah. with us. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in the show notes below to find her website, online courses she offers, information on upcoming events, and her free Facebook group.